the word of God from 2 Samuel. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remains in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you. Could you remain standing a little while longer as we just uh, dedicate this time to the Lord? Heavenly Father, um, as we search your scriptures, seeking out your face this morning, um, we pray for your help. Lord, there's a hardness in our heart, there's a resentment that lives there, there is um, self-protection that we walk with, Lord, and we need your spirit to soften us and to humble us. And uh, Lord, this is a hard passage and confusing, and so we pray that You'd be so kind and gracious to illumine the scriptures that we would just know you and give ourselves fully to you. We pray this to the glory of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name's Ronnie. Uh, just last week, we restarted our study through the salient passages of First and Second Samuel. Um, in Second Samuel, we've subtitled the sermon series "Acquiring a Taste for God as Our King." So, First Samuel was looking for a king, 
And, and now that the text has David ascending to the throne, we see in 2 Samuel, even Israel's greatest king leaves us like wanting something more. And the way that I would describe all of these passages in 2 Samuel, if I could just kind of summarize how they work on our heart, is that they're meant to be redemptively disturbing. And if it's not doing that, you're not reading carefully. Um, this passage in chapter 6 is no different. It is so confusing, right? We're studying the story about a moment in Israel's history when when David was returning the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, and while they're transporting this Ark in a cart, the Ark, you know, the, the, the ox stumble, the cow stumble, the Ark almost falls over, this man Uzzah puts out his hands to keep it from falling, killed instantly. Like, what do you do with that? Like, what's the moral of that story? The story is confusing to not just you, but a lot of people. It was confusing to David. This is, um, I don't know, this is one of those stories that people try to cite to describe, to argue that the God of the Old Testament is this primitive deity with this primitive ethic. And um, it's a story that, honestly, people will try to cite to show why they could never believe in God or, or believe in the Bible. And I do, like, hear me, I really do understand, like, the uneasiness that people have with these stories. But please, please listen carefully. The problem is not that we are too sophisticated and this story too primitive. The problem is that we are too primitive and the story is too sophisticated and the good news, though, is that with a little bit of reflection and study and, and warning, I might get a little bit teachy today. I'll do my best, but you might have to turn on your thinking caps. Um, but with a little bit of study, we can understand the beauty and the importance of these ancient stories like this one. To be sure, stories like this are infinitely important for modern people. Because this story is actually going to help us to understand God for who he truly is. And it, it will be, a, it will taste bitter at first. Like it will, it'll taste bitter at first sip. But let's acquire a taste, right? Like a good coffee or a good wine. Give yourself humbly to this confusing text. Now to do this, you, you got to soften your heart. You have to disarm your cynicism. You've got to let go of your presuppositions. See, the problem is, is that when we begin on a spiritual inquiry, a spiritual journey, we, we, we begin with this sort of a priori concept of God. Right? We have all these ideas shaped by our modern, our moment in time, our social imaginary. We have all these ideas of God. And if God meets those expectations, then we accept him. But if God does not meet them, then we reject him. But that's the wrong order. <laughs> because if you're, if you're seeing if God fits your model, all that's going to do is produce a God that is formed by our own wisdom and our own cultural logic and impulses. 
See, the question is not, do I like how God presents or do I like what he is like? The question is, is God real? If he's real, then it doesn't matter if he fits your pre preconceived ideas. He's an infinite God, and we are finite creatures. Our duty is just to submit to him for who he truly is, whatever that may be, not according to our cultural moment or opinions, you see. Because if we did it any other way, then God would only become a projection of our imagination. And that's not what we are in search of the one true God. So who is God, and what is he like? This morning, we are going to study a story that's going to prepare us to meet him for who he truly is. And so, in an effort to study this narrative, um, there, there's kind of three phases, or three points that we'll work through. First, we're going to see King David wants the ark, point one. And then we're going to see the ark does not want King David, point two. And lastly, problem resolved. So let's begin, point one, David wants the ark. So you'll notice in the text, the story begins with excitement about bringing home the ark of the covenant. See, the ark had not been in Jerusalem for about 20 years. And, uh, and David was ready to return this relic back to its home. But the question we have is why, why the excitement and the celebration? Well, what is so special about this ark? So ark is just a fancy word for um, box or chest. Um, interestingly, I think I've mentioned this to you before, the ark is what Noah built for his family and the animals, which was just a really big waterproof box for animals, right? Uh, now the ark of the covenant, of course, is smaller and it is extremely special. It was, a, it was a wooden box, roughly about four feet long, two and a half feet tall and wide, and it's completely plated with gold. On the sides of the ark of this box are these gold rings, and they were there so that you could put gold-plated poles through the rings in order to transport it so that the ark would never be touched by human hands. Now, sitting on top of this ark is this solid slab of gold, and it is called the mercy seat. And sitting on top of the mercy seat, or sometimes called the atonement cover, are these two cherubim, which is a fancy word for angels, and their wings are stretched out. And so this is like, it's beautiful. And the Ark of the Covenant was the only piece of furniture that was allowed into the holy room of the tabernacle. And not only was it the holy room, I mean, it was inside of the holy of holies. And no one is even permitted to enter into the Holy of Holies except for the high priest. And he could only do this once a year. And the reason why this is so sacred is because on top of the Ark of the Covenant, right on top of the mercy seat, is where the immediate presence of God dwelled. The cloud of glory is known, as you might have heard this before, the Shekinah glory of the Lord, the infinitely heavy presence of the Lord. That is what explains the celebration. That is what David is so excited about. He knew that he had to have that kind of presence with the Lord. It was not enough for him just to have a generic cultural belief in God. 
David longed for a deeper experience of God's presence. And, and I'm not talking about like an ecstatic experience, but I'm, I'm talking about an experience that could be more compelling than the experiences in his life. And why would, like, why would that be so important for David? One commentator put it like this. It's because David had an extremely hard life. Every year, David's kingdom was threatened. Every year, his family was threatened. This would have been the most, the most incredibly stressful season of his life. Every year, things literally get worse for David. And so David knew that he needed a deeper joy. And he needed it, he needed it to get stronger in his faith, even while his circumstances were getting worse. He needed an encounter with God that was deeper than just religious sentimentality. It was not enough for him to just say with resignation, you know, God just has a plan for everything. No, he didn't want just words of comfort. He wanted God himself, you see. He needed to be so anchored in God's presence that his joy would increase even as his circumstances were dissolving. I could remember, I think the story was first in Tim Keller's um, Counterfeit Gods, but it was a story comparing these two like multi-millionaires who lost their fortunes uh, during the crash of 2008. Both men, parallel lives, lose everything. One of those guys takes his own life, and the other man is reborn into an even greater person. I think about that story. Like, that second guy was mysteriously strengthened by the crisis. I mean, he loses everything, and yet he is strengthened. So I hear stories like that, and I ask myself, what did this man have that, uh, that allowed his joy to grow stronger even while his circumstances grew worse? That man... And King David understood the same thing. They knew that God's loving presence and approval is the only stable thing in this world because everything can and will dissolve. Look at me. Everything you love will rust, break, or die. Everything. And that is how come it is so important to relate to God outside of your circumstances. Listen, it is easy to come to church and, and sing songs when everything is just going right in your life. But, but what about when your life is like falling apart? What about when your success and your reputation collapse? What about when like you make really bad decisions, and you fall back into your addictions, the things that you said you would never do again, and there you are. What happens in that moment? You can tell how much a person understands the very presence of God in those moments. You can tell how much they understand God after they fall or when they experience crisis, right? In that moment, do they run to God? Do they run to his people? Longing for his presence? Or do they run away from God? 
Do they savor resentment? Do they move towards isolation? David knew that he needed God's presence more and more because his life grew harder and harder. He didn't, and he didn't run towards God because David was perfect. On the contrary, he ran towards God because he was desperate. Not perfect, but desperate. I mean, he was a mess, right? We've, we've, been, we've been talking about these stories, and, and spoiler alert, it's only going to get worse for him. He was a failure, and yet he was able to live with this deeper joy even though his problems grew worse each day. How about you? How about you? Like, do you experience God like that? You must. Like, you must. Because you won't make it. Like, sad days are ahead. Following Christ does not promise that everything will be fine, but what it does is it offers assurance that God will give you all the resources on that sad day that you might find rest in him. See, our faith offers joy that's mediated through God's presence, and that is intended to be more compelling, more moving, more stabilizing than the ground that you stand on. And you need your heart to move in that direction. So that reality, that desire for, long, for God's presence, helps us to understand the eagerness, the celebration that David exhibited in retrieving this Ark of the Covenant. But there's a problem. Point two. David wanted the Ark, but the Ark did not want David. And now, to help you understand this, this requires a little bit of history. I told you I'd be a little bit teachy. Um, the children of Israel, right, they began to understand that the Ark was powerful. But instead of appreciating, like, the presence of the Lord, they began to relate to it as if it were, like, a secret weapon. One that they could sort of use and wield for their own benefit. And so what they're doing is they're trying to manage the awesome power uh, and presence of God. Now that's ridiculous because he's not like a magic rabbit's foot or anything like that. But it did happen. In fact, if y'all remember in 1 Samuel, we studied a story that talks about this. What happened is that Israel is at war with their arch enemies, the Philistines. The Philistines went into battle against Israel, killed about 4,000 people. And so Israel is just desperate. So these two priests, y'all remember Phineas and Hophni? Uh, they're known for embezzling money, for seducing women. They take the Ark of the Covenant and they try to use, leverage its power. So what happens? Well, the Philistines win again. And, but this time, they take and they steal the Ark. Hophni and Phinehas, they die straight dead. So the Philistines take the ark, they put it inside their own holy temple where their main god, Dagon, uh, he, he resides in this temple. Now listen, you, we know that there is no other god. Uh, Dagon is just, uh, he's just a statue created by the artisans of the Philistines. But in that culture, stealing other other nation's deities was actually very common. In fact, 
To capture the God of your enemy is equivalent to conquering them and to conquering their God. So now the Ark of the Covenant is in the Philistine temple, and when their priests went to pray to, to Dagon, they found this big old statue on its face, almost as if it's worshiping, right? The Ark. So they, you know, the priest put it back upright again. The next morning, they go back in the temple. This time, it's back on its face, but its head is cut off and its hands are cut off. And then that's only the beginning. Things get worse. The town where the temple resides, it's called Ashdod, becomes, everyone becomes plagued with tumors. Like the entire city is starting to suffer. Panic breaks out. So they sent this ark to a different city. It's called Gath. And then that city is, is afflicted with the same plague. And so they sent it to Ekron. And now by this time, everyone's like totally freaked out, of course. So the Philistines decide to just get rid of the ark. They're like, oh, we don't want this thing. And they just put it on a cart that's pulled away by two cows. They didn't want the ark anymore. They just sent it back into the wilderness. They sent it away, led only by cows. No one wanted to get near this thing. And so all by itself, these cows show up in this town called Beth Shemeth. And uh, the men saw it. They placed the ark on this great stone. They try to look inside of it. Seventy more people die instantly. Uh, I mean, the, the ark is wreaking havoc. One of the Levitical priests finally puts it in a house. No one messes with it for 20 years until David decides to bring it back to the tabernacle. That's where our story begins. So David is, has this guy's transporting it back. Now, in the book of Numbers, stay with me here, Israel is given very specific instructions on how to do this. The ark must be covered. It must be carried with these gold-plated poles through the golden rings. They must be carried only by priests. The ark can never be touched. Now listen. Every one of these rules listed in the book of Numbers must have been broken by multiple people. They must have been. And let me just pause for a second here. Because this is, this is where we get a little uncomfortable in our story. This is where people will say, uh, is that why Uzzah died? Like, because he broke a few rules, really? And here's my response. No, that's not why he died. In, in the words of one commentator, breaking the rules was the occasion for his death, but it wasn't the reason for it. In order to understand the reason, we have to understand what these rules are intended to teach us. These rules are showing us that God is not simply a religious relic like any other nation. Listen, you guys, think about this with me for a second. All the world religions have their relics, right? The Muslims have Muhammad's beard. Uh, Hindus have temples filled with reliquaries for which you can pay homage. Uh, if you're Buddhist, the, the remains of Buddha are thought to, to bestow or bequeath blessing. I mean, lamentably, even Catholics and some sectors of Protestants have relics purportedly that give blessing if you just touch them or, or visit them. And how is it that relics work? Well, you have to, like, reach out to them, right? You, you do a pilgrimage. You give them money. You light a candle in front of them. You pay homage and thus render devotion to the deity through it. 
right? Right. That's not how it works with God. The rules of the ark are meant to show that the God of Christianity is unlike any other religion. It is, he is not a relic. See, in other, in other religions, you can get power or you can get blessing by reaching out to the deity. But with our God, and it's so important that you understand this, there is a chasm so vast between us and God that it is impossible to reach out and to get him. In fact, it's deadly to do so. It's deadly, but not in the way that you think. Well, let me explain. So in Christianity, we recognize that this chasm between us and God is so big that there must be a bridge between us, right? A payment, uh, an atonement. And, and so let me remind you how the Ark of the Covenant functions. So the Ark is meant to reside inside the Holy of Holies all by itself. The only person who could see it is the high priest, and that, as I mentioned, once a year. And that day is called Yom Kippur, or Day of Atonement. And at Tabernacle, on that day, between the Ark of the Covenant and the people was, if, if you could see a picture of this, there is this altar between people and the Ark. And the priest would take an animal and slaughter that animal on the altar then would collect the blood, enter into the Holy of Holies, and sprinkle the ark with the blood. So in order even for the high priest, the holiest person of Israel, to even come close to the immediate presence of God, something has to die. Why? Because the chasm between the holy and the unholy, between us and God, is just too big the rules were intended to make us aware of that chasm and your human effort is not sufficient and if you approach god not recognizing your sin not recognizing your insufficiency then it becomes lethal see listen this is important because it doesn't help you interpret the details of the story when uzzah reached out to touch the ark, he died. But the truth is, he was on a trajectory of death for a very long time. He believed that he was sufficient to approach God, that he was sufficient to reach out to God. Because think about it. When Uzzah reaches his hands out to keep the ark of the covenant from falling to the ground, like what is it that he's actually doing? Right? He's actually trying to keep the ark from falling to the ground, getting into the dirt, and being defiled. Like He doesn't want the ark to be defiled by the dirt. But it never occurs to him that the main agent that could defile it was him. As I thought that the problem was the dirt. He was the problem. And he has no sense of that. He is the point of defilement. And if you don't realize that you are the point of defilement, then you are on a trajectory of death. I mean, think about this, you guys. Like, several people must have touched the ark earlier to load it on the cart. The ark was supposed to be carried by, by poles, not by a cart. Several people broke that rule. Many people broke the rules. 
and yet only one person died in our text. Why? Why? It can't be about the rules. It can't be about the rules. It was because God was trying to wake everyone up. He's trying to wake up King David so that they see their own defilement and understand the massive chasm that exists. In the words of Eugene Peterson, you and I have to understand that human efforts cannot bridge that gap. You cannot approach God. Don't you dare approach him with your own hands. That gap can only be bridged by radical grace. If you think you can reach out to God through human effort and bridge that chasm between you and God, hear me, you're on a trajectory of deep spiritual death. Why? I'll tell you why. Because you're trying to put God in your debt. I mean, you wouldn't say it like that, but that's what's happening. You're trying to manage God with your efforts, right? You're approaching God with your own worthiness, being good enough, your resume, and that's tantamount to having an exchange or a negotiation with God. And here are the practical consequences, right? If you, if you relate to God by relating to him through your efforts, and, and, and if you achieve the life that you wanted, like it all kind of works for you, you will be arrogant towards people who are not as strong or are not as disciplined as you are. You'll have very little compassion for people who, who, who are filled with failures because you perceive, you, know, you perceive yourself to be a person who successfully lived up to the standards. Like, why can't everyone else do it? It was easy for me. Or on the other hand, if you related to God that way and, and, you, and you live this good life that you think you have, but you don't get the life that you wanted, you will become hopelessly bitter to the God of this universe. Why? Because you see yourself as a good person and God owes you a good life and God's clearly not living up to his end of the negotiation. You believe that you've deserved it or you've earned it and he is in your debt and you are just waiting for your reward. Other people have kids who get sick, but not me. Other people, I can see why they don't get married, but me, I deserve it. I, other people, I can see why they don't get the job, but I deserve the job. I've lived a good life. I'm a good person. You see the negotiation? And do you see the resentment? Here's one more final scenario. If you reach out to God and relate to him through your efforts... But, even, but if you fail even your own standards, like you wrote the rules and still didn't live up to those rules, what happens? Shame, hiding, guilt. And all three of those scenarios are paralyzing and deadly. And sadly, the church is filled with people who are arrogant and proud, cold, angry, cynical, or plagued with shame and guilt. And the Lord is saying, wake up. I should have killed all of the transgressors, including David, but I only killed one. 
Now you remember that, because I'm going to return to that thought. So let me move to my final point. We began by seeing God's excitement about, or excuse me, David's excitement about getting the ark, right? Verse 1-2 says, David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people who were with him in Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of the covenant, which is called by the name of the Lord. And then verse 5, it says that David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps. He thought getting the presence of God was too easy. And then I try to demonstrate how the ark did not want David. Verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? David began to think then that the presence of getting the presence of God was too hard now. Uh, and that's an improvement, but that's not the whole picture. And the final point here is demonstrating how this disparity, how this problem is resolved. After Uzzah died, the text tells us that, look at verse 10 and 11, David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of, into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed him and all his household. Now, very easy to repass that. Something very peculiar is happening here. God does clearly want to bless with his presence, right? I mean, Obed-Edom and all his household. But so far, we've only seen the ark kill Bad people and good people. Like, it doesn't discriminate. Which leads me to this conclusion. You and I should never try to distinguish between good people and bad people. In fact, we should rather just conclude that there is only bad people. Even the ones who preach sermons on stages. Romans 3.10, right? This New Testament, the Apostle Paul is going to say, he's, like, he's going to say, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Pretty clear, pretty straightforward, pretty easy to interpret. Everyone, this includes me, this includes you, this includes Gandhi, Mother Teresa, the Pope, and our sweet grandmothers. Love you, abuela, but you too. For most people, that, the, that few sentences I just said is perhaps the most offensive doctrine of Christianity. Our culture is obsessed with this idea that people are basically good and that God will accept us if we're basically good. And pretty much everyone except Hitler is basically good. I mean, that's literally how we talk about it. And so just like Uzzah, we're reaching out to God on the basis of being good people. Strangely, it would be Friedrich Nietzsche uh, has this re profound reflections on this issue. Nietzsche is going to ask the question. He's going to say, why do moral people act morally? And his conclusion, moral people act morally for immoral reasons. He says they want power. They want to get God on their side. And here's the point. Here's the point. Because all of us are like compromised. You can't 
distinguish between good people and bad people. Not from God's perspective anyway. Maybe if we do the comparison game, maybe, but not from God's perspective. In the words of Tim Keller, bad people want control of their life by breaking the rules and doing what they want. Meanwhile, good people want control of their life by getting God on their side through their moral performance. But both sides want control. All people are defiled, thus an infinite chasm between a holy God and an unholy people. All people have a chasm that they cannot bridge that exists between them and God. That is the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant, to teach you about this chasm and to show you then how it can be resolved. Remember how I described the Ark of the Covenant, right? Solid gold slab called the mercy seat. The priest would kill an animal, sprinkle the blood on top of it, which means something had to suffer and die in order for God to be approached. Now, some might argue, why couldn't God just forgive? I mean, why, why did there have to be a sacrifice? I mean, why so much blood and death? What's the point of the blood? And I really appreciate that question. And so I want to help us understand and kind of grow in our theological sophistication. It's interesting, I just did a wedding homily uh, last week and had to touch on this precise issue. Because the question is, why doesn't God just forgive? Snap his finger. Why must there be suffering? And here's the answer. Is that all forgiveness takes suffering. All forgiveness takes suffering. And let me explain. Have you ever, this is a rhetorical question, have you ever been deeply hurt by someone? I mean, have you ever been unjustly hurt by a person? And I'm talking about a hurt that is so deep, you can't just overlook it. You have, right? What you experienced in that moment was an injustice and a debt of sorts. When this debt exists, there are two options. You can get angry, and you can make them pay, and you can ruin their reputation, and you can withhold your friendship, and you can make them pay the debt, and they suffer. Or, or, on the other hand, you can forgive. Instead of ruining their reputation, you don't. And you absorb your anger instead of expressing it. And you can choose forgiveness. And by doing so, you will suffer. It will be painful to forgive. And if you have ever forgiven a hurt that is deep like that, you know, like you know it hurts to forgive. And you can choose. You can make them pay, and they will suffer. Or you can forgive, and you will suffer. But whenever there is a debt, someone must pay and someone must suffer. And if you choose to forgive, look at me, if you choose to forgive, you will suffer and you will understand Jesus more than you ever have. You will understand the suffering that he endured in order for God to forgive us 
you will understand the nail and the thorns and it will all be very bitter, like it will be, but that's what it takes to acquire a taste for God as your king. Wherever there is true forgiveness, there will be true suffering in proportion to the offense, in proportion to the debt. This is the universal reality of forgiveness. That's why at the heart of our relationship with God is a cross. It demonstrates the radical grace that God extended to us in order to bridge this infinite, costly chasm. And the infinite chasm can only be filled by an infinite God. That is who Jesus is, absorbing God's wrath suffering for us and offering forgiveness. This is why the author of Hebrews later in the New Testament describes Jesus as the one who enters into the Holy of Holies and drew near to the Ark of the Covenant and drew near to the presence of the Lord on our behalf. This is Hebrews 9.12. Listen to this. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It's so straightforward. In fact, you can't understand those words in Hebrews without the Ark of the Covenant. Listen, God should justly kill all of us, but he has elected to kill only one. His own perfect son. The depth of our sedition against our creator who has given us life is infinitely deep. And yet God gave us his son that we might look at him, Jesus Christ, and allow our hearts to be awakened by his grace and love and mercy. And to the extent that you understand that you have continual access to the immediate presence of God through Jesus Christ is to the extent that you can experience astonishing joy even as your life is falling apart, even as circumstances are getting worse and and devolving. The text tells us in verse 14 that Jesus, or excuse me, that David would ultimately dance before the Lord with all of his might. Why would he dance? Because the problem was resolved. The chasm was bridged. Do you have that, do you have that joy? Do you have that joy? Or are you just holding your cards closed? Seeing what God will pay out in order for you to love him. That won't help you on your sad day. It won't. And it won't help you say, I'm sorry. It won't help bring out the glory that you were destined for that comes only through this deep humility. If you want that joy, if you want that faith, you can. You can have it. But it goes through Jesus. Why don't you have a conversation with him? Why don't we stop playing church?
And let that be where our hearts go. Amen? Amen.